Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Tom Marine here from Tom's Big Spiders. I'm going to kick this one off with announcing that I finally did my collaboration with Gar Rees, Predator or Prey Online. We've been planning on doing one for a while, and we got talking about the topic of some folks putting their fossorial species in terrestrial enclosures, so not giving them any room to burrow, create their burrows to dig, which often leads to, quote-unquote, aggressive tarantulas. And I do that with kind of rolling my eyes because I don't believe in the whole aggressive tarantula theory in 99.9% of the cases. They're defensive. They're not trying to attack you and kill you. They're not trying to stalk you. We've gone through this before. But anyway, Gar and I think a, a similar mentality behind the YouTube channels with the fact it's more about education, showing people what amazing animals they are and showing them the proper care. Gar does a ton of breeding as well, knows his stuff. So I think we both sometimes get a little bit annoyed when people come on our videos and go, you know what, be careful with that one. Those are really defensive. I've seen them. That Blah Blah has one when he opens it up, it attacks. And it, it it bothers me because I don't like to, I don't like it when they're characterized as being aggressive because I've had, I've, I've experienced really none of that, knock on wood. And I don't even think I really have to, you know, be superstitious about it. If you give them the correct environment, if you give them what they need to feel safe and secure, you're generally going to have more laid back tarantulas. So for example, the other day I walked into, it was morning time, I was half asleep, I'm a zombie, and I'm about as grumpy as you can get in the morning, but I walk into my tarantula room, I look, and there's one of my Kilobrachy species, Electric Blues, which we'll be talking about in a couple minutes, sitting right on the top of its enclosure. So I, I'm like, let me see if I can get a picture of these guys, because I don't see them very often. And I unclip the top, I take the top off, and she just sits there. Because she knows at any moment, she can just bolt right back down that hole. She feels secure. And when I'm, I'm taking pictures, I took some video, and then finally she had enough. She got to calmly turn around and went down the, the hole. That's exactly the behavior you want to see from these guys. And that's what I've seen from, you know, my H. Lividus, my Kilobrachy species are all very – I've never gotten a threat pose from any of them. From my Selena Cosmia or Phlogius Craspies, whichever name you prefer, I, I don't get any of this, you know, defensiveness or aggressiveness. I don't have a hard time with it. And I think for those of us who love these animals and are trying to take away some of the stigmas that are attached to them, it bothers us when they're portrayed in a way that's not realistic or that can be prevented. I think that's what it comes down to. And I know that some folks will keep theirs in terrestrial setups because they want to encourage more of the webbing and they are obviously equipped to change their surroundings if they don't get the type of setup that they need. So for example, if I drop a Kilobrachy species in two inches of dirt and give it a little height to its enclosure, it's going to web that up. However, that's when you get the problem. You pull the top of the lid off, you rip the webbing up, the tarantula thinks you're trying to dig up its burrow, and you're going to have a negative interaction. So anyway, I was a little worried about putting this one up because it's it's been difficult to tactfully navigate the potential minefield of putting information out there that might fly in the face of what other people are putting out there. And I don't want it to seem like I'm attacking other, you know, folks who are giving tarantula information or, you know, other YouTube channels. It's nothing about that. I don't mention it. You guys should know how I roll now. I don't mention names and stuff, but I will, you know, sometimes I have to allude to this is why I'm doing this. And I did kind of in there and I said, you know what, I, I tried to take the other side and, and see the, the line of thinking. And for some folks, it's like if I'm going to do a YouTube video of a spider, I want to be able to see it at any given time. So some of them will set them up on more shallow substrates so that they can see them so they can, you know, get the views. And that's just not my mindset with that. That's not Gar's mindset. So anyway, finally got it out. And I was so happy because it actually, I thought it was going to be incredibly boring. It was like 25 minutes long. It's me talking about different cage enclosure types for fossorial species because that's something I've struggled with finding things that I like. 
Gar comes on, does an amazing part where he does his Emuranus, who is an absolute beauty, and shows how calm she is because she's got room to burrow. And that's one of the species that pops up quite a bit with folks saying, yeah, my Emuranus is just nasty. And, and I say, oh, send me some pictures. And it's like a terrestrial setup and it's webbed its own enclosure all the way up. And it, it you know obviously doesn't feel secure. And then you're going to get kind of a, a crazy spider. So I'm so glad he picked that one. Like I couldn't have picked a better spider because that was one I wanted to do, but I don't catch mine out very often. So... The good news is it's out. It's on YouTube. So for those of you that watch the actual, I mean, listen to the podcast on it, this was the video I've been keep. I keep referring to it, but it took some time. I also wanted to set one up. I have a Kilobrachi species electric blue again, which we will be talking about in a moment that I'm going to rehouse today, and I want to do a husbandry video on that. But what I did is show how I set the cage up beforehand, adding moisture and whatnot. So anyway, that one's up. Glad it's up. Glad the response has been good. That one dude that goes and thumbs it down immediately came up, but. Eh, Cares, whatever. But the rest of it seems to be very well received, and I'm getting a lot of positive comments back, which is good, and a lot of people that agree. And I'm glad because that's all it's about is getting the word out. I mean, bottom line, if you're keeping your tarantula the wrong way, expect it to be defensive. There it is. I mean, I don't like to draw black and white, but I do feel like in some of these situations, it is a black and white issue. And when you see a tarantula that is kept incorrectly, and it is having those quote unquote aggressive type responses, then there's a moment that you need to kind of step back and go, is there a way I could keep it better? Now, if you choose not to put in that, and I've had people tell me, well, I don't want to put it in a bunch of dirt because then I'll never see it. Well, then that's on you. That's not the tarantula. That's you not giving your animal what it needs. So if you get an aggressive one, that's your problem. So anyway, I think part of the issue is people see this stuff on other videos. They see them kept different ways, which is good. I think that's one of the, the cool things about YouTube is you get to see how a lot of people keep things and often how a lot of people keep them successfully. And they don't always, they're not always the same. And I do think that's something we need to keep in mind in this hobby is that there's sometimes more than one way to keep them. There's sometimes more than one way to do things. However, I do think there are situations where somebody might have a certain amount of recognition in the hobby that keeps them some way. And then unfortunately, that's where that problem comes in where people look at that. They think this person knows exactly what they're doing and they copy that and emulate that or go on to other people's videos that actually understand what they're doing and criticize them because of that. And that's where it becomes kind of a problem. So again, just trying to diffuse the that and get that information out there, have people understand. I'm sure, assuming anybody listening to this probably knows that, but uh, it's a topic that bears repeating because it's something that comes up quite a bit. Just this morning, I got an email from somebody they were keeping a Kilobrachi species. They were talking about how it's really nasty. And I asked for pictures of how they kept it. And it's in like a flat box with a little bit of substrate, a whole lot of webbing. Yeah, you're going to have a defensive one. And I said, oh, that's not where you keep it. And they mentioned that they had seen a YouTube video. No, this wasn't a prominent. I, I didn't recognize the YouTuber's name, so I'm not, I don't want anybody to read into this because that happens sometimes. But they had seen on a YouTube video where somebody kept it this way and they liked the webbing. So they were trying to emulate that. So there you go. So I said, well, if you don't want that kind of behavior, cup it because it's not going to be too difficult, it's right out in the open, get it into something with some depth, allow it to burrow. The other thing is it looked very dry, which isn't good for that species. So it still happens, and hopefully, you know, little by little, we'll, you know, crack away at this and kind of get people in the right direction as far as is concerned. At least give them that other perspective that, okay, I understand you saw it this way, and I understand that spider's growing and it's doing well, but it's not happy. That's the reason it's acting out. It doesn't want to kill the guy that's, you know, filming it. It is trying to defend its habitat. So... Moving ahead, I'm sure the topic will come up again, and uh, <laughs> we'll just keep trying to get that good information out there. All right, so for the second point, before we get into talking about Kilobrachia species electric blue, 
I, after last podcast, I was talking about the fact that I would love to redo my beginner species video, but I, it, it's one of the most popular videos I have up there, and I think a lot of people appreciate it. I get a lot of comments on it, a lot of people asking questions, which is great, but they're just I wouldn't do it the same way if I did it now. And again, the information isn't bad. It's just I would it, it'd probably be a different order. I might there'd be some species I would take off it. So for example, I'd Euathlus uh, parvulus on it, which I absolutely adore that species. I lost mine to an impaction and still heartbroken because I haven't been able to find another, but nobody can find them. So it's a species It's like saying, yeah, this is a great beginner species. <laughs> Nanny, nanny, boo, boo, you're not going to be able to find it because nobody has them. And of course, I don't even have one anymore either. And then there was, I forget, there's another species on there I probably wouldn't have put on it, but I was trying to put things that I kept and at that time you could find them and I was hoping somebody would breed them. Anyway, so I decided the other day I was sitting there and I was trying to figure out how can I approach this? How can I redo it and make it better? And it occurred to me when I first made that video, I didn't have that big of an audience. I had, you know, Tom's Big Spiders was doing okay. You know, the, the website, I was just kind of getting into the YouTube thing. This was my first attempt to make a video for YouTube. We actually, I had species that I purchased. I wanted them, don't get me wrong, but I paid a lot of money for it to get because I wanted to feature them in the video. Because what I did when I created my first beginners list, I went on the forums, I went on YouTube groups and kind of took an informal tally of which ones were recommended when people asked which are the best beginners species and I use that along with my own experience so I tempered it with that but mostly went by you know here's the species that people are you know pretty much recommending to others the people that actually keep them people in the hobby and then my own experience with keeping them and use that to create my list so it wasn't just Tom Moran said that these are you know he looked at his collection these are the ones that are the best no I took in other information I'm like what if I took that a step further because now I have an audience you know with YouTube being pretty large with you know obviously with you guys being pretty large, there's I can reach a lot more people than I could back then. So I'm like, what if I just put it out and told everybody, here, give me give me your top three. What are your top three? If I would ask you right now, what are the top three tarantulas you would recommend to a beginner? What would they be? This way I'm getting, it, it's not just me going and hunting. It's people going, all right, you've put me on the spot. You've asked me the question. This is it. And it caused people a lot of thought. The only parameters I put on this is that they had to be readily available. I said no old worlds, which... <sighs> Again, I had like five people just like kind of give me the finger and go, well, anyway, I'm going to give you an old world anyway. Well, don't even answer. I just said I don't want old worlds. Why are you wasting my time? So no old worlds. I'm not going to get into that discussion. We'll approach that again someday, but I think I've already explained ad nauseum why I won't consider old worlds for these. And I think that was about it. Availability, price. It was, I really just wanted to hear, I didn't want to put a lot of strictures on it. I just wanted to hear what people would recommend. And my gosh, this was amazing. Like I got kind of obsessed with this. I've spent the last several days tallying these up. And what I did is I came up with a point system for first place, second place, and third place. Because I figured the first one people recommend, that's going to be their top choice. And then what I was noticing is a lot of people were having, like, they were really giving a thought, like, all right, first place is absolutely this. Second place, I'm thinking for this one. So we wanted to make sure there was a point system in place. So it wasn't all, if we had just added them all up, it would have been chaos. And I think I came up with a fair one. And it really didn't matter because the top four that I've already checked so far, not only did they have the most votes that would have gotten them in that place, but they had the most points. So if that makes any sense. So I don't want to go through the list right now because I want to be a, a, I want it to be a surprise, but I, I have to say I was kind of shocked at the results. Not like a bad shock, pleasantly surprised at some of the things that I wouldn't have, I would not have chosen this order in uh, particularly. And it's given me a lot to go on as far as this video because what we're going to do with the video, I'm going to try to make it more fun, upbeat. I'm going to do a lot more editing on this one. It's going to take me a while, so don't expect this one to pop up next week. 
But what I want to do is kind of have it be the definitive one. Like if you're looking for a beginner species and obviously I had several people come on and do the old, well, I don't believe in beginner species. I stopped, started with an HMAC. La-di-da. Awesome for you. That's amazing. I kind of got into old worlds fairly quickly myself. However, I talked to enough people to recognize some people are not going to be okay starting with old worlds. They don't want, they're afraid of them. And if you're afraid of them, you're going to make mistakes. So there are, as much as people want to say there's no such thing as a beginner species, and, and I do get the logic behind that, and I, I understand where they're coming from. From some people, they need them. They want them. Obviously, if people weren't looking for beginner species, and I think, to, to put it out there, folks that are searching up beginner species are being responsible because they're realizing, all right, there are some spiders I might not be ready for. That's awesome. We want to encourage that. So let's entertain the idea that there is such thing as beginner species. Which are the ones you recommend? And this is going to be, I, I want it to be definitive because it's going to be you guys picking. It's going to be the folks out there that actually raise these guys. The majority, I think just about everybody that chimed in was keeping the ones that they recommended. And for some people, it's awesome because they're like, I don't know if I'm like, my opinion's valid because I just got into the hobby, but these are the three I got and I love them and they're doing great. Well, guess what? Your opinion's very valid because you're the one that this list would have been for. So, I, I won't go into it right now. Um, I, I want to. I'm staring right at the list, and I want to, like, there's a couple that I just really want to discuss. But what we're going to do is going ahead is I'm, I will be doing a podcast version and the web, the, the, the website version, the YouTube version of it. And I will be explaining who what they chose. I will be probably pulling a comment or two from people because a couple people really took their time to kind of explain why they made the choices they did. And a lot of them aligned very well with what I had thought when I made mine. And then what I will do is put my two cents in. So for example, a couple of the ones that are high up, I would not have, I had further back in my list only because they can be a little more high strung. They can get cares. I know for a fact some people have picked them up and been freaked out by the quote unquote speed. This is hints. Don't anybody guess though. I don't want people are going to guess, but I I will put my two cents in with things that people need to look out for, but I'm bottom line. You guys have spoken. This is beyond me. So who's right? You guys are not me. So I will put my, like, this will be nice because I'll be able to basically structure it like, all right, here's a species that was picked. Here's a number it was picked. This is how many points it got. And this is my thoughts on it. And again, I don't, I wouldn't say I disagree with any of them. There's only one that makes it on the list that I, but again, I, people pick these. So I can't wait to do it. I, as you can hear, I just would love to turn this whole podcast into talking about this list. And that's going to happen, obviously, when I go to do the actual podcast on it. But just to kind of uh, pique everybody's curiosity, let's just say there's some there's going to be ones on here that people are going to be like, duh, there are ones that, you know, we all would put on our list. I will say there's a couple that are really near and dear to my heart that I was really afraid weren't going to make the list because of some of the ones that were getting a lot of votes. There is one in particular that I thought was going to make the list that didn't come anywhere near making the list, which was kind of neat. So what I'll probably do is I'm going to do, it's, I think the title of the video is going to be Baker's Dozen Best Beginner Species Chosen by You, the Keepers. And obviously I'll put my two cents in, but it's, it's going to be you guys doing this one. And then what I will do is put some of the ones that I have raised that didn't make the list, but definitely got mentioned several times that people may want to check out. So anyway, that's something I, I hope to look forward to. I'm excited about it. It'll be fun to revisit that video. And I was so glad that I came up with a way to revisit it without it just me being, hey, Tom ran again with my second attempt at a, a, a beginner species and then just having, you know, me do the same thing I did last time. This just, I think this makes it so much more, so much more valuable and so much more real. This isn't just one guy doing it. This is all of you guys is what you came up with. So 
Very excited about that. I'll keep people updated, but it is. I've already started writing the script for it because I don't want this to be me meandering talking about them. I want to be able to have – I normally don't work with a script. I don't like working with scripts. The majority of stuff I do is just off the top of my head. I feel like it flows better, but in this case, I need a script, and we're going to try to make it flow. It's going to be a little different from my other videos, but hopefully it works out great. Hopefully appreciate it, and hopefully we manage to create the definitive beginner's list for people who believe in beginner species and who are looking for you know, a, a good spider to start the hobby with. All right, so moving on to our main topic for today, it's going to be Keelobrachy species electric blue. You guys are going to be my warm up because I'm about to do a husbandry video on this with while I'm doing a rehousing, you know, my old let's rehouse them, get some pictures of them, then talk about how to keep them type thing. And I will be doing, you know, obviously all the husbandry details as I go through. And I got a funny feeling it's going to be a rather quick rehousing because the container it's got is kind of small. There's not going to be a lot of dirt to dig through. And it's been sitting up on the top quite a bit lately, which I've noticed with some of my fossorial species when they get a little big for their enclosures and this one's definitely in need i'm to call myself out on this one it, it needs a rehousing it molted recently and it's quite large but i have it all set up nice big five and a half gallon tank for it it's only about three and a half inches now or so but i want to go rehouse it and it would be nice to have kind of run through some of what i'm going to say and honestly with the this type of format it's a lot easier because i'm not trying to when i'm doing the rehousing videos and trying to do the husbandry information it's kind of like, what is it, rub your belly, pat your head type thing. Sometimes I'm like, I need to concentrate, but at the same time, I'm trying to think of the details I want to put in there. So anyway, I picked my first one up. I think I got from Jamie's Tarantulas two and a half years ago. Now, this unfortunately is not going to be a good story because this was one of the spiders that I ended up rehousing into the tainted substrate. So to start off, it was in a... I believe the first one I had was one in one of those 5.5 ounce deli cups. And again, Kilobrockies I found grow fairly quickly. They do like to burrow and they do need moist substrate. So again, anything needing moist substrate, you want to give yourself a little extra room so that when you add water to it, you're not immediately flooding the burrow. If you put one into, and I have used the dram bottles, I did use dram bottles for the other two, but they were the larger dram bottles. But if you use one of the, sometimes you get a little tiny sling, you put it in a little tiny dram bottle, they start digging, suddenly you have substrate straight all the way up to the top. It's hard even using a pipette to add the water to moisten up the substrate without flooding the burrow. So I find that if you use something a little bit large, it gives yourself a little more room. You can kind of focus more where that water is going to go and not flood the burrow. So anyway, first one I got, it was about a three quarter inch sling, put it in one of those 5.5 ounce ones. It outgrew that one pretty quickly. They eat great. They will cover up the tops of their the entrances to their burrows when they're ready to molt. So you can see them. Sometimes it's just with webbing. Sometimes it's with webbing and dirt. It looks like literally they bury the whole thing over. Then when they pop out again, sometimes they're nice enough to throw their molts out so that you know they're molted and ready to eat. And usually at that point, they're ready to go. But mine was eating well, again, with all my slings. I, it was kept at the temperature range, low 70s in the wintertime, high 70s to 80, low 80s in the summertime. Grew rather quickly, outgrew the enclosure. I fed them twice a week like I do with most of my slings. And that's partly into, I've had people come on and they think I'm telling people you have to feed them twice a week. I'm not. I'm just telling people my schedule. And the problem is with the slings or the reason why is with the slings, a lot of them are moisture dependent. And if you're checking on them twice a week, there's less of a chance for it to accidentally evaporate and dry out and kill the sling. Because I think we've all been to the point where we forget to check something it's wintertime, the cage dries up, and now we have a sling in you know subpar conditions. It can kill them. So I like to check more often than not, and I find it easier to just feed them at that time. It also helps grow them out of that sling stage a little faster. So unfortunately, mine put on a great deal of size. It was pretty big. 
outgrowing the enclosure, and I decided to move it into one of those two-quart clear mainstay canisters that you can get at Walmart. I love these. They're very clear, easy to ventilate. The only downside I have is the mouth of the container is actually circular, while the container itself is more of a cube, so there are corners. So when you go to get something out of that, whether it be a fossorial or an arboreal species, they can end up in those corners, which and it can be very tricky getting them out. And if you have an old world scrunched up in one of those corners, and you're trying to negotiate a brush in there at the right angle, you feel like your hands a little close to it. It kind of it can be a little uh, nerve wracking. So the only drawback to those. It are those corners. So just be aware. If you put them in, they look great. I did a bunch of, I used to keep all my juvenile arboreals in them. I still like them, but they can be a little bit of pain in the took is trying to get something out of. So anyway, I am. It, it got big. It was right around November of 2000, I think 2017, because I think last year was already. So it was 2017 was the year of the the bad substrate. And I put it into that substrate that I picked up from Agway, mixed it with vermiculite, topsoil and vermiculite, gave it a good probably four and a half, five inches. It made a great burrow, burrowed down the bottom. It was eating like a machine. And then I came in to check on it one day and it was down the bottom. I'm like, oh, it molted. It had its, its molt was there. I could see the spider. But something didn't look right. And I shined the flashlight in. And unfortunately, even though these containers are clear, when they line them with webbing, you can't really see into them very well. But something just struck me as being wrong. And it didn't seem to be moving. But sometimes they scrunch down. And that's the unnerving part when you have the fossorial species. And sometimes you're checking on them and you're convinced they're dead. And you're like, do I open it up? Do I not open up? Well, in this case, I took it on my dinner table, carefully cleaned the dirt out, and was horrified to discover, yes, it had molted, but it had lost three of its legs in the process. It had bled out all over the webbing mat. It had put down the molt on, and it was dead. It had died. And again, this was one of the first ones I was heartbroken. Like, what the heck could have gone wrong? The substrate was moist. It was fresh dirt, so it wasn't even like it was, you know, an older enclosure. Couldn't figure out what it was. It wasn't until much later on when I lost a bunch of other stuff, including all of my assassin bugs, that I realized, you know, it finally dawned on me it's the substrate something's in the substrate stop using it stop having death so unfortunately first one doesn't end well but if the substrate hadn't been poisoned with something that would have been a nice setup for it and it was you know doing well eating well it made a couple it actually made a dirt turret on one side but then it had a second entrance on their exit on the other side webbed up on the surface quite a bit it was a great setup for that time so fast forward a little bit, I picked up two more from Tanya at Fear Not Tarantulas because I was heartbroken and when I lose one, I want to jump right back on it. The, there's this thing that really bothers me that I need to prove to myself that I can raise these species because again, I've been doing this for a while, but when I lose one, I'm always, I can't help but blame myself and think there might've been something I did wrong. So I want to kind of prove that wrong and say, look it, okay, I did it. That was kind of that was a freak occurrence. It wasn't me. It was something that, you know, beyond me. And obviously with the first case, I did figure out what had happened. But I got two uh, three-quarter inch slings, started them again in the dram bottles, kept them in there for a while. Again, you want to keep the substrate moist. And the easiest way to do it when using the dram vials, because if you pour water on the top, it's either going to trickle right down into the burrow and flood the bottom. Or if they've got webbing on the top, it's going to basically puddle on the webbing. So what you want to do is use one of those pipettes, jam it down the side, preferably the side it's not on, and try to carefully squeeze some water in there and moisten down the lower levels, but not flood the burrow at the same time. So these guys, I waited to rehouse them because, again, even at this point, in the back of my mind, it, they were doing great until I rehouse them. So I kind of developed a little like... Uh, 
PTSD around, oh my gosh, every time I rehouse something, it dies because of that darn winter with that substrate. But finally came time to rehouse them. So what I put them in is those, I think they're about a quart. They're Sterilite, what are they called? Clear, they're stackable ones. They have the green handles. They're probably about four and a half inches by six and a half inches by maybe five and a half inches tall, kind of, you know, rectangular. And if you've watched any of my videos, you've seen them on there. I can't, I just tried to find some because somebody asked me where I get them and I couldn't find them any. Anywhere. I think they might have been discontinued. I know I was having a hard time finding them, but I love them for larger slings because they offer a decent amount of floor space and some depth for the ones that want to dig. So I put both of them into those as they were probably around at that point, probably close to the you know inch and a, inch and three quarters, two inch mark. They were pretty big for those dram bottles because again, I was gun shy with moving them out. So both cases, I put them in, gave them starter burrows, Moist substrate, probably about four inches of moist substrate, maybe a little bit more. And again, remember when setting up the fossorial species, one mistake people will make, and I've done it myself, so I'm not <laughs> judging anybody. You tend to fill them up with as much dirt as you can. If you get too close to the ventilation holes, remember when the spider digs, it's going to drag up that extra dirt and sometimes they stack it against the ventilation hole. So what you have is a situation where as soon as you pull the top off the enclosure, the dirt is packed all the way to the top, which can be kind of a pain in the butt. So remember, leave a little space in there, but about probably four, four and a half inches of moist substrate, starter burrows, cork bark and a water dish. They both went in. They both shot right for the starter burrows. They went in there, used that to construct their actual burrow. A lot of times they'll end up with an entrance that's not where you put the cork bark originally. That's obviously totally okay. And in this case, these guys kind of did this little maze of tunnels that went all the way around the bottom and then up another spot. They had like one of them had three entrances at one point. One of them had two. Again, continue to eat great. Once they hit this size, I was feeding mine, you know, smaller... <laughs> When you get the large crickets, some of the large crickets, like an adult cricket, if you're doing the house crickets, can be quite big. They're big, juicy guys. If you're using the banded crickets, they tend to be a little smaller. So pitch are kind of a large banded cricket size. They were taking those no problem. And once they hit around two inches, two and a half inches, I switched to once a week. Now, again, every time I check on them, I would make sure that water level didn't go down the moist substrate. The line that demarks the moist substrate didn't go down too far. And that's something to keep in mind when you're keeping fossorial species that are moisture dependent. It's not the surface that needs to be wet. I have people that will email and say, I, I can't keep the surface wet. It's, it keeps drying out. So I keep pouring water. No, no, that's fine. The top can dry out. It's that burrow. That's where they go down and they find the moisture level they need. So the top layers can dry out a bit. And you want that. You don't want it. If you have moist substrate on top, that's, that's where you're going to start getting the, the fungus and molds that nobody really wants and it's not very desirable or sightly. So don't worry about keeping the top moist. The idea is to keep the bottom moist. And to do that in these enclosures, I like to do the old make it rain. I have the bottle with the, you know, holes in the top that I squirt on the top. But what I do is I tilt the enclosure a little bit to the side so that the water puddles in between the substrate and the side of the enclosure. And then what will happen is it'll start, you know, path of least resistance. It'll start going down in between, go to the bottom layers and keep those bottom layers moist. That's what you want. You can also use a pipette, but with this enclosure, it's going to be, Probably not quite large enough for that to work. Like it, it, you're going to be using a lot of pipettes full of water to add the amount of moisture you're going to need. I find at that point it's easier to pour it in. And if you want to miss the webbing, again, they will come out and drink. That's okay. But just know that that water isn't going to hang around very long. Now, with the fossorial species I found, I do 
often put the fake plants on the cork bark. I'll glue some fake plants in there, put some pla- fake plants around there. But do know that a lot of times when they're first constructing the burrow, those get completely covered up. And I've had a couple where they basically dug out entire, like all the dirt underneath the actual, the cork bark hide that I placed in. And what you get is that thing sinks down and they end up burying all the plants. However, I do always include, and I want to make this note because I actually made this note in my video as well, I always include a starter burrow and a piece of cork bark or something for a hide for my fossorial species because one mistake people will make is they'll read that these things will make their own burrows. That's great. They absolutely will. However, when you first house them, if you just put a thing of dirt in there with no place to hide, they end up scrunched up usually in one of the corners off the ground. They're going to go to a spot where they feel secure and because there's no place for them to hide initially, nothing to cover them, they're going to feel exposed. They're going to know it's, you know, obviously the light is there, the, it's going to freak them out. So they're going to end up in the corner where they can feel like they're kind of secure. So know that I, I've had people go, oh, you don't need the, I've literally had people go on the videos and go, you don't really need to give them that. Well, yeah, you do. You know, is it going to get, is it going to be like a pretty, like with your terrestrials, you're going to have a little picturesque, you know, a half round of cork bark with the fake plants coming off it to kind of, you know, add some feng shui to your enclosure? No, you probably won't. But are you going to have a spider that's going to settle in a lot quicker and be, you know, feel much more secure and less defensive a lot quicker? Yes, you most likely will. Now, they don't always adapt to the starter burrows, and that's something that needs to be mentioned. I'll get people that will, you know, go, hey, I give it a starter burrow, but it's not using it. It happens. I will tell one, tell you one trick. I use that if I really want them to use a starter burrow, it tends to work. I, eight out of 10 times for me is I pour water into the starter burrow. So it's immediately moisture, more moist than the rest of the surrounding substrate. And they tend to gravitate toward that. So a little tip there that usually works pretty well for me. So anyway, starter burrow, they're going to probably bury it over. They're going to also web. So if you do add plants above that, keep in mind that will, a lot of them, especially I'm thinking Keelabrocchi species, will come to the surface and do some webbing on the surface, especially actually after once they get the burrows acclimated, they'll web up the inside of the burrows. That webbing will extend outwards over the, you know, the surface of the substrate around the burrows and around the burrow entrances. So if you put some plants in there, it will encourage them to, you know, lay down some of the white stuff, which can be very picturesque and a lot of people find very attractive in their enclosures. But again, at that size, my electric blues, the cool part is, and I wonder if this is part, you know, you, you see things with like fish, that have natural lures, that shiny things that look like other fish. I think there's, what is it? There's an insect or a bug that has something that almost looks like a little green fly that it dangles out to try to get things to come get. I might have just made that up. I swear I saw something where one that has like a lure that attracts other bugs to it and then it can grab and snatch up and eat the other bugs. You have to wonder with the Keelabrocchi species, electric blue, the way they hang out with their legs, those electric blue legs hanging out in the front of the burrow, if that doesn't entice things to come in and explore. Like, ooh, what is that bright color over there? Yeah, let me check this out. Munch, you know, you're done. So just, again, speculation. I don't know if anybody's witnessed that, but it does seem like when you have a spider that has developed that much of a striking characteristic, those electric blue front legs, that there must be a reason for it, especially when you catch them seemingly purposefully sitting in the entrances of their burrow with those legs hanging out. And that's normally when people get pictures of them, you see a lot of their front legs because that's normally how they hang out. So anyway, as far as defensiveness, I've had no problem with mine. Again, they have burrows to retreat to. I think that's a huge part of it. Uh, I caught, again, I caught mine out the other day, sitting right on top of the enclosure, was taking pictures of it. There was no threat poses. I accidentally kicked the flash on at one point, and sometimes that triggers it. It just kind of moved a little bit. It was rather laid back. So haven't had any issues there, nor have I had with any of the other Kilobrachi species that I've kept. My Fimbriatus is fine, although she's a little more bold than some of my other ones. She'll come out of the... I went to feed 
Twitter the other day, and I saw her kind of sitting on the top of her. She was in the dirt in the entrance of her burrow, and I took the top off. I went over to get a roach. I came out, and she kind of scampered out toward me a little bit, like, oh, are we getting fed? Which I thought was adorable. It wasn't aggressive. It was more like, hey, are we getting fed here? It seemed to be a feeding response. And then her feeding response when I dropped the roach in, it was impressive. So, But no threat poses, nothing like that. I've caught her on the surface again when she feels threatened. She goes right back down the hole. Now, the only thing that kind of makes these guys a little more complicated, again, is the, the moisture dependency. And it, this the Kilbrocky species are spiders that are going to appreciate that moist substrate. You're going to want to make sure they're moist. And I found it rather, you know, again, once a week, you check them, you feed them, check that level. Don't overdo it, though. That's, I think, one thing we run into, one issue we run into with the moisture-dependent species, and sometimes I see it when people send me photos of them, is they they panic and they overdo the watering. You want that those bottom layers, if you moisten them up, they'll stay moist for a little while. Generally speaking, they're not going to evaporate all that fast. So if you look in, if you open the enclosure, and I, I've fallen victim to this myself, I've done it myself, if you open the enclosure and you notice the top's dry, but there's a good band of that moist stuff, you probably don't need to add any more water. I've screwed up before and I look in, I'm like, there's a good band there, but I'm going to add some more and kind of overdone it. Don't make them swampy. And again, obviously, I forget to mention this sometimes, but the ventilation is key. You want to have good ventilation. Back in the day, they would tell you, I believe the Tarantula Keeper's Guide has a whole thing telling you how to block off the top of your enclosures to make sure that no moisture gets out with like saran wrap or something. And we now realize that's not, that's not the way to go about it. They need that you know, movement of air to not develop stagnant enclosures. So I personally like to do, I used to originally back in the day, do holes only on two sides, thinking that would be, you know, decent enough cross ventilation. I've now been doing holes all the way around several rings of holes for them so that they get good ventilation. If you have a room that you can run a fan in, that helps even more to keep the the air circulating. Because again, you don't want to, when that gets moist, you've got moist substrate, moist dirt, in a little enclosure, if there's not any ventilation, that's a recipe for like to create a petri dish of things that you don't want in your tarantula enclosures. And I have a funny feeling, we've talked about this before, that sometimes with the fossorial species, we're not sure, we're adding water day after day, week after week, year after year, and God only knows that water doesn't go anywhere. It's not like outside where it's going to get a mixture of rain and sun and there's going to be like other animals in there devouring you know some of the materials and stuff like the feeder insects and stuff if you're not using feeder insects and even if you are that could become stagnant after a while so you want to make sure you prevent that as long as possible by making sure you have good ventilation now as far as adults are concerned that's where i'm at now i've picked up a five and a half actually two five and a half gallon Zilla critter cages, I think they're called. They're about 16 by 10 by something. Uh, decent sized cages. And I'm going to try these out for them. I mean, as far as I'm thinking of my Kilobrachi species, which is my uh, Kilobrachi guangziensis, sorry, that's my biggest Kilobrachi species right now. She's in one of the sterilite containers and seems to have enough room. And these seem to af- offer a little less depth, but more floor space overall. So we'll see how it goes. I'm hoping these work out well and this can be a, its final home. Kilobrachis, they aren't huge species. And generally, if they have room to burrow, they can tear up that whole bottom layer, create a nice big burrow, have their entrance up. They'll be fine. So we'll see how that goes. And right now, I mean, I have the setup video. It's part of the video I just posted on fossorial species. But what I ended up doing was putting in a bunch of dirt, starter burrow, piece of cork bark. There's about six and a half, maybe seven inches of substrate in it right now. After I shot the video, I put some more in. I was going to, I used the, as far as substrate's concerned, let's take a minute because everybody always asks me about substrate. Anything, what cocoa fiber, peat, topsoil all work. No, if you use cocoa fiber 
it doesn't retain moisture as well as some of the other ones, and it has a huge problem where if you put it in a moist after it evaporates, it settles a great deal. You are going to lose a lot of depth to your substrate once it inevitably dries out. So that's something to keep in mind. I've filled enclosures up with six inches of cocoa fiber, and you know a year later there's like four inches, maybe even less. And you do want to make sure you tamp down your substrate. I've seen people in demonstrations like dump a bunch of cocoa fiber in and they stir it up with their hands and leave it fluffy. And most tarantulas can't stand walking on fluffy substrate. You need to pack it down. And you want to pack it down because the more you pack it down, the less likely, you know, the less you're going to have it settle and you're going to lose that depth that you're going for. So if you leave it all fluffy, I'll tell you right now, if you put a bunch of fluffy, wet, cocoa fiber into an enclosure and you let that dry completely out, you're going to be amazed with how little you're left up with. Just think about when they squeeze them up and dehydrate them to ship them to you in those bricks, how small of an area it takes up. Well, when they get all fluffy and they settle in, that stuff tends to settle a great deal and it can leave you in a situation where you started off with, you know, fossorial depth and now you have like terrestrial depth. Uh, peat works great. It's just dusty to start off. It can be hard, a little tougher to rehydrate, but once it's hydrated, it holds on to moisture really well. Topsoil works great as long as you don't buy Agway and get a poison bag like I did. And a mixture of any of those work well. I add uh, vermiculate to everything uh, that came back from, it was uh, in, back in the 90s, that used to be what everybody kept them on, just you know, an inch or so of vermiculite. And I use it now as an additive, and I think it does wonders with both peat, topsoil, and cocoa fiber, although cocoa fiber absorbs pretty well to begin with. It does wonders with allowing that moisture and that water to you know, leach in and go down to those bottom layers, and it helps hold on to it. So just something I do, I get it in these big, bags are like huge bags of it probably like three feet tall by two by a foot or so just big bags i don't buy the little stuff that you can find because it generally you're paying so much more i think the big ones like 30 something bucks they last me forever so if if that would be my recommendation if using substrate mix something that works for you i'm also using bio dude stuff lately and i like it it's obviously pricey but i love the i like the consistency of it i like the mixture of it it's obviously a peat based one and you'll see in the video when i add it i didn't moisten it up ahead of time and you can see the dust that comes out and that's the only drawback I've found with peat is it's incredibly dusty. So if you're doing an enclosure, you probably want to do it outside or everybody, there's going to be a dust everywhere and everybody's going to be blowing their nose with freaking mud snot later on, which is exactly what happened to everybody in the house when we did this video. Sorry, that was probably gross, but it's something to think about. So anyway, whatever you end up using, I, I do, you know, for me, I like mixing the vermiculite. I've used peat. I've used all of them. They all work well. The, the, Cocoa fiber, probably my least favorite, and cocoa fiber I did move away from when I got into, actually, it was my guangziensis was started me rethinking the whole cocoa fiber thing because it just wasn't holding on to the moisture the way I wanted to. It's fluffier and doesn't hold the burrows as well as you might like, So, but it can still work, and people use it, and I've used it. I have it in some things now because I went back to it after I had the incident with the bad bag of substrate, and it, it can work, but Anyway, I, I set them up. I've got this setup going. I'm going to be Billy's at the store right now, obviously, because I'm doing the podcast. But when we get home, we're going to be shooting the video for that one. And we'll be putting them in them. And I was going to add plants to it. But honestly, it, it, I was getting ready to put one in. And I'm like, you know what? I just want this thing to settle in. And they're going to do a lot of digging. And you never know where they're going to dig. And I'm afraid kind of that I'm going to drop the plant in. And then it's going to go dig right by the roots of the plants or something. So we're going to hold off. I may add one later on. And I know that's not the way you're supposed to do it. But I may add like a pothos or something or something that will go along the ground to add a little flair to it. Because I do like one of the issues I have with these enclosures is that there's no cross ventilation. I'm a huge proponent of cross ventilation. I understand that people have used enclosures for years that do not have cross 
cross ventilation and they're fine with them. I just think you have to open them a little bit more and air them out. And the top of this cage was originally wire screen. So what I did was used a utility knife to cut the wire screen out, cut a piece of plexiglass to fit that area drilled the holes in the plexiglass for ventilation, and then use silicone, uh, aquarium-grade silicone to glue it in there, put a little piece of tape over both sides just in case to hold it in place. But it's got a, now got a plexiglass top with the holes in it, which will allow top ventilation, but none of that side ventilation. I would like to look into drilling the glass eventually for, like, if I continue to use these, it would be nice to put some vents in the side, and that'll be something I'll look to do later on. But for this one, we're doing it like this. Adding the plant, I think, would help, you know, I'd like to think would help with the oxygen in there and the quality of the air would help in that respect. But we'll see. So what I will probably do is let it settle in, let it do its burrowing, let it do its thing. And then once it's settled in, created its burrow, webbed up, maybe block off part of the cage, put a plant in, and then, you know, block a part of the cage so it doesn't come out and bite me when I'm trying to put the plant in. But then get a plant in there, maybe a pothos or something that's, you know, really hardy and see where it goes. So time being, we're not doing the plant. It's kind of a stripped down enclosure and you can always make adjustments to your closures once they settle in. I just usually encourage people to do it after they've settled in, not while they're settling in. And we'll see how that goes. But at this point, right now it's about three and a half inches or so. So this will probably be its adult enclosure. We'll see how it goes. I mean, if it gets too big, I, I can rehouse it. But I'm hoping these work out because they are attractive they look great in a shelf. They do allow for that extra dirt. And that's the other thing with the, it's tougher sometimes to get the cross ventilation with the fossorial species because they fill the thing so far up with dirt that they often block it off. So we'll see how it goes, but I'm hoping this turns out to be a good enclosure. I'm hoping to get some good footage of it. We got the new camera. So Billy knows this one, this time around, we're going to try to get some good footage of it because you don't see them all that much, which is a good thing, honestly. When you get the fossorial species, don't expect to see them all that much. It's kind of the fun of having the fossorial species because when you catch them out, it's like an extra thrill. So the key takeaways with this species are it's it's going to be shyer if you're giving it the space to dig. So give them room to dig. They need the moist substrate. So you're looking for containers that offer that depth so you can put enough, you know, in there. I'll help people sometimes it'll go, hey, I have the exoterra breeding boxes. Are those good for, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they'll name off a fossorial species. And my answer is always no. They're, they don't, those unfortunately don't offer a lot of depth. Those are really, they make great enclosures for any terrestrial that really isn't doing a lot of, spending a lot of time in its burrow because you can't put a lot of substrate in them. The actual base of those, the clear plastic base is not all that deep because the top is almost, not don't but there's a good inch, inch and a half of space at the top because of the way the top is, which gives it more depth, but it doesn't allow for a lot of substrate. So when you open that enclosure, say I put, you know, two and a half inches of substrate in that, when I open the top and take it off, that spider is going to be right there in my face. So not a good one for fossorials, nor are the, unfortunately, the Exoterra Nano shorts or talls or the bigger ones there. I don't find those are necessarily great for really heavy diggers because of the fact that that space underneath the door, the dam they have, the substrate dam, is not all that deep. So what people will try to do, which can work, and I'm not going to, you know, I have seen setups that look really nice and it seems to be the spider is happy. So I'm not going to say they won't, they can't work, but it's tricky because you have to basically angle the substrate. So you start the substrate where you only have about three inches of space in the front, but then you angle it up in the back. So you get like five, five inches or so. And then they will sometimes put a piece of cork bark tube in there to kind of give them an entrance to the burrow, which gives them some space in the back corner to create the burrow. And that can work. 
it's not ideal. I did just put my Ophilopinus into one of them, and I did kind of that arrange. It's it's a bioactive enclosure. I tried to put more substrate in the back and kind of angle it up and gave her a den. And the only thing with her is she hasn't burrowed in like two years. She's been hanging out. Her The last time she molted, she came out – actually, two times ago, she molted and came out and kind of filled in her burrow and kind of just sat in there more terrestrially. So when I put her in this one, it was understanding that she wasn't exercising that, you know, fossorial behavior. And she's done well. She kind of, more often than not, she's out in the open. She's been great. So something to think about when you're doing those is when you come up with an enclosure, the important thing with the fossorial species is to make sure the enclosure is appropriate for the spider. Don't just go for something pretty. And I know we're all out there looking for great, good-looking enclosures, but it, it sometimes, you know, people will pick ones up and, and try to make them work and we don't want to reinvent the wheel other people have already proven they're not the best enclosures in the world so try to pick something that allows for that depth that allows them to hide even if you have and, and keep in mind one of the things i talked about in the fossorial video is the fact that some of them will seemingly go through these stages where they're not using their burrows and that's cool and some of them will completely outgrow their burrows and just won't use them as much totally cool but I always try to give them dirt just in case they decide to go back to that burrowing or fossorial behavior you want to make sure the option is there and because I have had species again we talk about one Ophilopinus female that abandoned her burrow the other one abandoned the burrow one mole and then the next mole after it molted re-dug out its burrow so it went back and forth so give them that choice give them the opportunity and obviously Kilobrachy species you're talking about a fast potentially defensive not aggressive spider that if not given a place to hide and feel secure you're going to get some of that behavior and as an old world species it's going to pack a heck of a wallop as far as a bite and you don't want that so the trick is if you're getting one of these guys i know they're beautiful i know they're gorgeous i know you want to get lots of photographs of them but you're probably not going to see them all that much and just be prepared for that but know that when you do see them it's like a little miracle especially if you come down in the morning you know we're getting ready for work that's usually when i find mine when i'm getting dressed in the morning and i flick on the lights and everybody's like oh crap we got caught and they all freeze and i go around and check everybody out or some people just kind of slowly turn around and go back down their dens that's when i get you know to see them and it's and it's amazing but that's about it they're great eaters i do think they're more hardy than they're sometimes given credit for, but I don't want to play around with the moisture requirements. This isn't a species I would go, yeah, they can dry out, they'll be fine. I don't play that game. I make sure that they always have moisture in there. And if you allow them to hide, you're not going to have, you know, that angry, nasty, eight-legged monster that people are talking about. All right, so that should about do it for this episode. Um, again, I got Billy's, Billy's going to be driving up here any moment. I got to help her get the groceries in. And then after that, She's going to help me film a rehousing video. So we want to get this video done. I want to get it up. I've been a little behind on the videos. I think I hadn't posted one in two weeks on my YouTube page. And that happens this time of the year when I'm back to school trying to figure everything out. We have parent night and everything else going on. So there's not as much free time, but I'm starting to fall, you know, slide into my groove. And again, the podcasts are going to keep coming. Those I, I enjoy doing them. They're easier to do. There was a part there where it wasn't so enjoyable because I was trying to figure out how to keep the dog noises and stuff out of the back. But I've gotten, I think, better at that. I haven't. I just listened to one of them back, and I know there was a spot where one of the dogs, I believe, farted in the background, and I was so afraid it was going to be on there, and people are going to think, man, what is wrong with this guy? But you couldn't hear it, which is great. So I don't get blamed. Nobody has to hear that. But it's it's been I've, – I've enjoyed doing these much more lately because now I've kind of fallen in my groove. I have Lily sitting right next to me now yawning, but I've, I've kind of got my – computer positioned in a spot where I don't think it picks up a lot of those noise because I've been very again I have people that go on and say don't bother apologizing mentioning it and I, I get that but you guys the people have been on here and listening to me for a while 
are used to it. The problem is I have to keep in mind there are people that have never listened to one of these podcasts that might pick this up and go, my God, the guy's so unprofessional. All you can hear is dogs snoring and farting in the background. So that's usually why I say it. But it hasn't been an issue lately. I've enjoyed doing it. There's been a couple things that have snuck in, but eh, whatever. But again, I thank you all for taking the time to listen. I really do. I, again, the podcast, I, I take so much pride in it. It's It's been something I didn't know if it was going to work, and it's been great. The feedback's been great, and I really appreciate the folks that take their time, whether they're at work or driving to work or driving back from work or whatever it may be to listen to this. It really does mean a lot because, again, as I pointed out last, I think it was last episode, when I go to the YouTube thing, a lot of that becomes with the YouTube, there's always the fan aspect of it where people just kind of go up and give you a thumbs up like, yay, love the video, and they sometimes don't watch it. And I don't I don't spend all the time doing this to have it not be watched. I mean, it's great that people are giving a thumb. I, I, I appreciate it. It's just here, you guys are listening to the whole things. You're, you're digesting them all, and that means uh, uh, so much. I can't even begin to tell you. So loving the podcast. I think I get at least one or two emails or messages a week. Please keep going with the podcast. I'm not stopping the podcast. There's more of a chance right now. And it's not going to happen. I don't want people to say Tom Moran's quitting the videos. But if I had to pick between one or the other right now, I would be sticking with the podcast. It's not. It's easier. I like the format. At least I know you all are actually interested in what I'm saying and are listening to the whole thing. So anyway, as always, thanks so much for everybody who takes the time to listen. It means a lot. And uh, hopefully, if some of you, I will put in the description of this, I'll put the link to the video for those of you who are interested in checking out the videos to go check out the video I did on fossorial species. Funny thing is I've had people coming on now, which is totally weird going, oh my God, that's what you look like. I've never seen one of your videos before. And remember when we started this out, most of the people that were finding the podcast were coming over from having seen me in the videos for years. So that's kind of cool too. And hopefully I'm not weirding people out. I do like it. Wow. We had somebody the other day, it was, it actually made my day like, not what I pictured you looking like at all. And I asked, what, would you, what were you expecting? I guess they were expecting somebody like more clean cut professor with glasses thing. And I'm like, yeah. Nui. So anyway, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you guys all next time.